Elias Pedersen scores! Kachuk scores! Matthew Kachuk! What a goal! You're listening to... Another chance! Great save by Markstrom! Here's Kachuk! Oh, what a save by Demko! Rintoul and Sermon. What's going on? How's your Wednesday? Hope you're off to a great start. We're going to make your day better. That's what we do. It's Scott Rentoul. It's Jamie Dodd. How are you on this midweek edition of the program, Jamie? I'm doing fantastic, Scotty. How are you doing? I am well today. We're getting over the hump. We'll get you there, too. Yes. want you involved. 960-960 or 650-650. Can we find something more scintillating than a taco salad debate for today's show? <laughs> I'm not saying that was the only thing that caught fire yesterday. We had a lot of replies yesterday on a bunch of different topics, but that one did seem to take off when you talk hockey in western canada that usually gets the job done and well it's just the infancy of getting prospects tested here today and then some rookies hit the ice tomorrow and main camp starts next week people are starting to think about the frozen game people are starting to speak about the frozen game we see the nhl media tour ongoing right now and we've seen a couple of general managers jamie in the last couple of days in this part of the country Make their voices heard. Obviously, those that cover the team reached out to them, but we have heard from Ken Holland. We have heard from Brad Treliving in the last couple of days. Yeah, and they've already given us something to chew on here, right? This isn't just uh, your normal platitudes a week out of training camp, I don't think. I think there's a little extra meat on the bone that we don't always get at this time of year. That leaves Jim Benning to speak. Not that he hasn't. He just hasn't done it this week. Brad Treliving, by the way, didn't just give us something to chew on. He gave me something to dry off from because the comments in Eric Francis's article yesterday that is available right now on sportsnet.ca, it throws some cold water on what I've been expecting during the course of this offseason. It throws a heaping buck of it. Is it posturing? Maybe. I still think the general manager of the Calgary Flames is probably working the phone, seeing if something's available. But the tone in Francis's article is different than what we heard at the end of last season and what we've expected this summer. Here's one of the quotes. The deals just didn't make sense. Well, he didn't say that, but it was close to that. I'm paraphrasing. That was basically the stance in Eric Francis's article. Brad Living. it's a second consecutive offseason in which the Flames have been far less active with their core than most people, myself included, believe they would be jamie last offseason it was adding players via free agency but it didn't shake up the core this year we thought there was going to be change in calgary with respect to either the goodrows the monahans work your way down the list the name matthew kachuk after a disappointing season even came up from time to time and yet all of those players and others who are considered part of that nucleus they remain on this hockey team right now and almost more importantly, perhaps, nobody who you might consider a new part of a core, right, is has been added. Blake Coleman, I wouldn't call him a core piece, right? You're signing him, yeah, it's a long-term deal, but you're signing him to be a complimentary player. They haven't shaken up that core. They haven't added to it. They haven't subtracted from it. And I, I'm, I agree with you. I'm really surprised by that as well. I thought that when Brad Trey Living came out and pretty directly said, yeah, we're going to shake things up here, Going into the offseason, I was pretty sure he would follow through on that because you understand the consequences of not following through on it, right? You're immediately going to have your fans asking some tough questions going into the season before you've even played a game. And there's still a possibility that could happen, right? The deals, they haven't made sense, but one could come along in the next few weeks here that does make sense for the Flames from Trey Living's perspective. But it is very surprising that it hasn't happened. And if you were... 
kind of waiting. Okay, hey, it's still there's still some something's still going to go down here before training camp. This definitely throws some cold water on that. Fans do it, media does it, everybody out there does it in the hockey world. We speculate, but when these people in positions of decision-making power have their chance in front of the mic, we have to take them at what they say. And it's why I've believed, okay, they've got to do something in Calgary because Brad Living came out and said, we have to change. Like, this isn't good enough. This is another year. Missed opportunity was last offseason. This was, we have to change. Well, that change to the pieces that most people view that on, it hasn't happened as of yet. And Treliving in the article yesterday made it clear that he and the Flames aren't going to use the market that Calgary is as an excuse. But the fact, Jamie, he says things in the article like, I think it's a really attractive market, but players look at different markets for different reasons. They want to get paid. They want a lifestyle. Not every market is for every player. The other quote that stands out in that regard, it may not be for everybody to play in Canada. We get that. That me, That leads me to believe the conclusion is a pretty logical one, that the Flames, at the very least, inquired about players, whether it's in free agency or via trade, that have an element of control over where they end up, and some of those players said, mm, maybe not me. Yeah, no thank you. No, we'll, we'll take a pass on that one. It is interesting because obviously the number one name that we were all talking about in connection with the Calgary Flames over the offseason was Jack Eichel, right? And Jack Eichel technically does not have control over over where he goes in this process, right? His no-movement clause doesn't kick in until next summer. So Buffalo, theoretically, free to trade Jack Eichel wherever they see fit. Now, realistically, you would expect if you're going to try to acquire a player of that magnitude, you want to make sure he's really excited about going to your team before you pull the trigger. So he it's just because he doesn't have a no-movement clause, he could still probably exert some influence and make Calgary much less interested in going out and trading for him. Jim Benning came out and said, I'm going to be aggressive, and he has been. Whether you like the moves or you lump the moves, he stayed true to that. We just mentioned what Brad Living said, and this article is a, hey, that's the road I wanted to go down, but for one reason or another, and I'm not going to get into the details of it, we haven't been able to go there. And what's been done on the roster here in the last couple of weeks leads you to the conclusion of either, which you and I have been speculating, okay, they're getting a few pieces in place so that they have excess here or there and they can still make a move, or it leads you to this. We tried to do what we wanted to. It didn't happen. So we're going to give the coach yep. the type of players he needs to succeed at the type of hockey he wants to play. And Daryl Sutter was among those outspoken, said, we need a number one center. He didn't say it in those words, but he said it without saying it when he compared his group to the other Canadian teams. Well, if you're not able to go get a number one center, go get the coach, quote, his kind of guys, and see if you can win that way and approach it with a Daryl Sutter mentality. How does that wash with Flames fans? We'll wait and see. Is it, man, this is going to be the exact same thing? Or, nope, believe in the coach. Maybe it's not pretty, but he's always effective. And it does seem now, looking back, that that Eric Goodbranson signing, maybe the Brad Richardson deal as well, was the Flames saying, okay, you know, we were kind of keeping some roster spots open. We were keeping some cap space free because we had some irons in the fire. If they're not happening, now we can go ahead and commit to some of these deals that we've had on the back burner up until now. You know, it's a great point about Daryl Sutter all but coming out and saying the team needs a, a number one center, right? We He kind of did his... 
you know, his rankings of teams in the Canadian division, which had legit number one centers and those that didn't. And Calgary was very conspicuously in the latter camp, right? He does not see a true number one center on the roster. And that's one of the big reasons why I'm so surprised there wasn't a move of some significance in Calgary, right? Because what Trey Living said about needing to shake things up, what Daryl Sutter said about needing a number one center, that just aligns with what myself, with what you, I think, Scotty, with what most people looking at the Flames think, right? Okay, good team, decent team, lots of good players on the roster, but they just don't have those high-end pieces and specifically that high-end piece down the middle to really compete and really take that next step. And it just seemed like a case of everyone looking at this team, the general manager, the coach, fans, media, et cetera, et cetera, everyone was in lockstep in thinking that. And that makes it to me all the more surprising that nothing happened. Now, look, it's not as easy as just saying, you know what? We need to go get a first line center this summer. Those are hard to acquire. There's a reason that they're very valuable. It's because it's hard to find those guys. But it did seem like Calgary would be more willing to take a swing than a lot of other teams, right? That they were in such a position of need that maybe they would overpay a little bit. And I don't know, maybe Flames fans are sitting here today saying, you know what? I'm glad Trey Living didn't overpay for that piece. I'm glad he walked away when he did. But I think it's still going to be a tough pill to swallow. You're going into another year lacking that true number one guy. This comes on the heels of Ken Holland saying the time to win is now. The general manager of the Oilers made those statements, that statement, I should say, a couple of days ago. It's a statement that was echoed verbatim by his superstar, Connor McDavid. Time to win is now. They've given us the right pieces. Now we have to make this work. And that leads to a conversation about pressure. And the three Canadian teams in Western Canada will leave Winnipeg out of it because they don't operate in the same division. And, well, look, we can set the basis of this. We all know this. This is an obvious statement, but I'm going to say it anyway. There is a lot of pressure in every Canadian market. We talked about Ottawa last week, the pressure for them to contend for a playoff spot, to be better than certain teams in their division, to take an upward step. We all know about the pressure in Toronto. Montreal, it's obvious. Winnipeg, yeah, first round or second round failure, I'd say, getting swept by the Montreal Canadiens. There's going to be pressure there with the only general manager they've ever had. And then there's the three teams in Western Canada. Jamie, Ken Holland said the time to win is now. There's pressure that comes with that. Brad Living in Calgary, I think we can all see the type of pressure there is, the contract the coach is currently signed to. And then there's Jim Benning and Travis Green in Vancouver who have a couple more years left on their deal on their respective deals, I should say, and they made moves, specifically Benning made moves that are, we better do something right now moves. If you're looking at those three teams, where's the most pressure? And I'll throw that out there to the listeners as well. Edmonton, Calgary, Vancouver, where is there the most pressure to win this year and why? So for me, I'm going to look at this as where are there most likely to be significant consequences if the team doesn't live up to expectations, right? If the team, let's say, let's just say for the sake of argument, misses the playoffs. And I think that's in Vancouver because you look at just how long Jim Benning has been in charge, the relative lack of success, and particularly in making the playoffs during his tenure in Vancouver And then you take into account, you know, hey, he said it. We're going to be bold. We're going to be aggressive. And he sure backed that up. But when you are bold, when you are aggressive, it means you're taking risks. It means there's downside there. And it means you're taking a certain amount of pressure on yourself. So I think the fact that he was so aggressive in the summer, it was a reflection of the fact that there was pressure on him. And it's also increased that pressure. If the Canucks fall well short of their expectations, if they miss the playoffs – 
and especially if they miss the playoffs by any significant degree, it's really hard for me to see Jim Benning surviving as this team's general manager. You know, I look at Calgary, I can imagine a scenario where they miss the playoffs, but Bradtree Living stays on. I think it's a possibility that he would be fired, but I can imagine a scenario where that happens and he stays on. Ken Holland in Edmonton. Yeah, he made some big bets this summer as well. He made he was very aggressive and and he's kind of increased the pressure on himself. But I can also imagine a scenario where they fall short of expectations and Ken Holland sticks around. Again, he's just been there shorter. He has that cachet of being Ken Holland. I think he could survive that. So if we're just talking about, okay, if which of these three teams, if they miss the playoffs, are, are there definitely going to be you know high-level consequences within the organization? I think it's Vancouver first. It's really close, and it's between Calgary and Vancouver. And it always does come down to the how, not just the what. How do you miss? Is it result of your best players being injured and you're on the outside? And I think you lay out the cases very well, Jamie, and I'm with you. Even though Ken Holland came out and said this week the time to win is now, and the first text that we get in at 650-650 is Edmonton from an unsigned texter, and the why is their top two players. That's the only real pressure there. Yeah, there's pressure from the fans. There's pressure internally. You know Connor McDavid wants to win. If Edmonton doesn't make the playoffs, or in the case of Edmonton, do something in the playoffs. I heard Mark Spector lay this out on radio yesterday saying, no, no, they have to be a playoff team. Like, that's already a, a foregone yeah. conclusion. And then they have to win around. Like, that has to happen this year because they got to the playoffs last year and they had a great regular season. McDavid did unworldly things, and that still wasn't enough, and they got brushed aside. Let's talk about round two. That seems to be the barometer in Edmonton. What really happens? The only thing that is catastrophic in Edmonton is if the top player asks out. I think that's been overblown for the most part, don't you? Yeah, I would still be very surprised unless things are just an utter, utter disaster and you know things are going wrong off the ice and there's tension like that. I would still be very surprised if Connor McDavid asks for a trade from Edmonton. Like, it's just, I get why we all go there immediately because he's the best player in the world and there has been such a frustrating, you know, he's had such a frustrating career with the Oilers. It still seems like more of a a media and fan creation than a realistic possibility to me. I feel like we're two years away from that, don't you? Yeah. Like, if Edmonton were to stumble and fall again this year, I feel like that conversation really gets ratcheted up next season. I don't think we're there yet. In Vancouver and Calgary, the situations are very similar. You're right. It could be clean house. Travis Green got a two-year extension. Jim Benning has a couple years left on his deal. He made significant moves that have to pay off in the short term. They have to pay off in the short term. So I think the way you laid it out is very fair. Calgary's in a really similar situation to me if this doesn't work yes i can see them retaining the head coach and moving on from the general manager i could absolutely see that i could also see them doing the exact same thing that i just laid out for vancouver and you did as well where they go okay guys like we've got to start completely over again it's been spinning the same hamster wheel for a really long time and we just need a freshness about this to take over the gig. I think Calgary and Vancouver, I I could make an argument for either one of those two teams right now. Yeah, I think those are the two teams. And uh, these texts come into the 960-960 Calgary inbox. Allen says, Calgary might have the biggest expectations. If they bomb this year, I think it's going to be a complete 
teardown, and I'm sure Alan Means there. And I guess that's actually one thing that's different about the Flame situation and the Canucks situation is if the Canucks flame out, excuse me, okay, you could see changes at the general manager position, at the coaching position, but you're probably not looking at massive player personnel turnover, right? Because a lot of people look at what the Canucks have in their core group of young players and they feel pretty good about it. And maybe you need a different general manager to get that group over the hump, but you're not running out and okay, we got to trade Elias Pettersson. We got to trade Quinn Hughes. That seems very unlikely. But to Allen's point in Calgary, I mean, it could be the GM, it could be the coach, and it could be a good chunk of the player personnel as well. There's far fewer untouchables or or clear-cut core pieces on the Flames roster than there are on the Canucks roster. And this unsigned texture also says, Jamie, there is no way Trey Living makes it even to the trade deadline if the Flames are out of a playoff race. No way. I can certainly see that. I just think... It's more likely that Trey Living survives a bad season than Jim Benning, but it's not a guarantee that he would survive by any by any stretch of the imagination. Which of the three teams has the highest ceiling to you, Jamie? I mean, I think it still has to be Edmonton, and it, it's such a lazy answer, right? Because, well, they have Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, but... Yeah, they have Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. And I have major questions about a lot of the other moves they made, especially on their back end. I have major questions about what they're doing in the crease again this year. But they have Connor McDavid, and they have Leon Dreisaitl, and they have some other good pieces in the forward group around them. So I don't think it's necessarily dramatically higher than the other two Western Canadian teams, but I do think they have the highest ceiling. What about the highest floor? What's the highest floor? Which is the team that you say, okay, I could ballpark where this team is going to finish and what it's going to be better than the other two? I don't know about highest floor, but maybe smallest band of potential results. I might say Calgary. I think Calgary, that's where I'm going. Right? Yeah. That's yeah. kind of, That's kind of where I'm going. I have a pretty good idea what they're going to be. Yep. And... It's, I think there are questions on the Calgary roster still, like especially on the blue line, which as you've noticed is kind of a theme for these Western Canadian teams. A lot of questions in defense for all three of these teams. Yeah, but because they don't have, you know, you just look at their roster. What, what's the complaint we make about the roster? They don't have that high-end talent. Okay, they have three centers you really like that are nice, but none of them is a clear-cut number one. They might have three second-line centers, and I think that reduces their upside but it also raises their floor a little bit. Like, it would be very stunning to me to see Calgary finish, you know, with a bottom five record or something like that. There's too much talent on the roster. They just don't have the truly elite talent to really push them up the standings either. It's interesting. I don't have a lot of questions about the blue line in Calgary. I have questions about the offense. I certainly do. I think you have to after what we saw last season. And when you look at what they have assembled, it's not going to be 5-3 every night. We know that. And nope. That's Daryl Sutter hockey anyway. 2-1-3-2, those are the hockey games you're going to have to win. And have they made enough augmentations with Sutter type of players to win more games that way than lose them as they did last season? This text comes in from Vance from the Loops. I'm going to go with Vancouver. He agrees with you, Jamie. They have made the most significant strides. They have the most to lose and the most to gain, says Vance in the Loops. Yes, it certainly... I think that's fair. And when you make more change, it always sets up that way, doesn't it? Benning has Benning has rolled more dice than anybody else with these three teams. Yes, exactly. That's a great way of putting it. He has made more bets than anyone else, right? Just I mean, the Oliver Ekman Larson deal is a massive, massive bet that he and it's a bet where, you know, Benning's future with the Canucks is probably riding on the result, right? Like if Oliver Ekman Larson doesn't at least play to a top four level this year, 
it's going to be really hard for the Canucks to have success, and it's going to be really hard for Jim Benning to survive, I think. Next text comes in. It's Calgary. Troy Living has to succeed this year, make playoffs and do something, or he's gone, says this texter. I think the case for Vancouver and, and Calgary is very close, and catch me on one day, I might argue one over the other. I think the pressures are very similar. You have two general managers who are hired within a few weeks of each other. Back in 2014, they've had the same type of tenure. One coach has been around longer, but they are on the exact same window with their deals that expire in a couple of seasons. It's super similar, even though the rosters are so much different, even though one of them kind of feels like Vancouver East. Yeah, that's that's, that's a fair way uh, to say it for sure. This unsigned text comes in 960-960. How can you guys say Edmonton isn't a disappointment if they don't make the playoffs? I didn't say that. It would be a massive disappointment. I'm just saying... I don't know that it would necessarily cost Ken Holland his job, but the texture goes on to say they have wasted how many years of Connor McDavid's career? You can't even compare Calgary or Vancouver to how bad Edmonton has been. And it, look, that, that is the tricky part of factoring in Edmonton. Because they have Connor McDavid, expectations are so much higher, and it will always feel like more of a letdown when they don't succeed, and especially if they went so far as to not make the playoffs. And as you said, Scotty, you know, the mood in Edmonton is probably, it's not just, oh, hey, let's get to the playoffs. It's we got to actually show some progress within the playoffs. We got to win a series. We got to do some damage once we get there. Okay, so what happens in Edmonton if they don't miss the playoffs? Probably Dave Tippett. Like, that's the easiest thing to change. And we all know he's a really good coach. But on Dave Tippett's track record has been, hey, you get really good at the beginning, like a major improvement the first year he gets there, and then there is a steadiness and a stability that he brings to the table. But at some point, if you don't get over, maybe you have to make a change. I'm not calling for his job. I'm saying if they fall well short of expectation, it's the most obvious move you would think to make. You're not going to overhaul the superstars on that roster, at least I don't think you're going to. Goaltending... That comes back to Ken Holland. Why didn't you do better? Why didn't you upgrade that position? Which they still have time to do, and there are people linking them to the Dallas Stars still. Maybe they make a deal at some point during the course of the season and get somebody else in there so it's not just Mike Smith at the age of 39 trying to carry that carry that team. But I'm with you. Fall short of expectation? I still don't think Ken Holland is the guy who's leaving. No, and this unsigned texture says, but what if an owner really likes their GM, even if the team underperforms? Yeah, that's a big factor. And that's why I would say Jim Benning is in more trouble than either Brad Trey Living or Ken Holland, right? I think Ken Holland and Trey Living both have just a little bit more rope to work with. Not dramatically more. They're not, you know, stone cold safe or anything like that. Oh, there's no way they'd fire those guys. No, like they, they got pressure on them for sure. I just don't think it's quite to the level of what Jim Benning has to deal with. Keep those texts coming in, 960-960-650-650. We can have this discussion throughout the course of the day. We've got another loaded hockey one that we want to fire away at the beginning of the second hour. We will turn our attention to the gridiron next week. One in the books. We're starting to look ahead to week two. Developing trends in the NFL. There's one quarterback in particular that our next guest wants to see succeed so that it means appreciation for someone else on that roster. Find out who next with Robert Mays of The Athletic Football Show on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. I don't know if the questions will ever go away about this particular coach. It's Scott Rintoul. It's Jamie Dodd. We're going to talk some NFL football here. Thanks for all the texts that are coming in early, National Hockey League related. We love them. We're going to work them into the program. We're going to switch gears here for just a second. 
He is Urban Meyer, Jamie. And as you know, a very high-profile college job came up this week. It's at USC. That is a big university with a proud tradition, and they want to get back to where they were. And so you are going to connect that job to any of the big-name coaches out there, even though Urban Meyer is fully employed and he's taken his crack at the NFL and he's got the first overall draft pick in Trevor Lawrence. You understand why he is asked about it. And he said, no chance. No chance I would leave the Jags for USC. Do you trust that? Well, I will say the words are forceful, but if you watch the actual video clip of him saying it, it's, he's kind of almost muttering it under his breath a little bit. So that maybe doesn't feel uh, fill you with confidence. Look, if it was a different, slightly different timing even, right? And, you know, he was midway through his first season and things weren't going well in Jacksonville or whatever the case may be, I I could see him leaving to take it. But just, I mean, we just finished week one, right? And, and I don't know what USC's timeline is to hire a new coach, to make a new hire, right? If they're happy to just go with an intern for this year and then look around in January when the college season ends, maybe that does make it more of a possibility, I just have a hard time seeing it. I, I don't know. Like, Look, I don't think things are going to go particularly well for Urban Meyer in Jacksonville. So maybe he's looking to get back into college. And this is certainly one of the premier jobs available in the NCAA. But for whatever reason, I just don't think it's going to happen. So in late October when Jacksonville still sucks and they ask this question yep. again, you'll put more credence in the answer at that point. Yep, I think I will. Okay, fair enough. Because... In that state where they watched Nick Saban come to the Miami Dolphins say, no, I'm not going, and then leaving. And it's not that far from Atlanta where Bobby Petrino Petrino, infamously showed up with the Falcons and said, nope, I'm here. Oh, by the way, 13 games is enough for me. I'm taking off. I'm going back to college football. You can understand, and you know how coveted those jobs are, and you do get more job security at big-time universities than you do in the National Football League even though in some ways you work harder because there's no off switch. And I know any NFL coaches would probably disagree with it, but it's the fact that you have to do the recruiting in the off season as the head coach of a college football program compared to figuring out who you're, what you're, what's going to be on your roster, how you want to change your schemes. Do you want to do anything with your coordinator? But it is 24, seven, 365, And then some, when you are the head coach of a massive college program in the States. The trade-off, though, as you said, is the job security and just the power you have, right? You have way more power over your players, over the program, over your coaches, everything as a college coach than you do as a pro coach in the NFL. Power, job security. It leads us to Robert Mays of the Athletic Football Show, who who brings us our next guest here today. He also writes for the Athletic. He joins us now on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Robert, thank you very much for doing this today. How are you? Doing okay, guys. How you doing? We are doing very well, and there's a lot to digest from week number one. And I know what the obvious storylines are, but I noticed one of your tweets, so I want to lead you down this road. Did Justin Herbert have the most underappreciated strong game at quarterback in week one of the NFL? Well, it certainly wasn't underappreciated by me. I I feel like some of the throws he made over the second half of the game won them that day. I mean, high leverage moments on third down. I was extremely excited about him coming into the season. I thought that he had a chance to become one of the kind of upper echelon guys in the league, even in year two. I thought that we've seen year two jumps recently from other people, right? Mahomes, Lamar, Josh Allen was year three, but slightly different case. I I thought that Justin Herbert had a chance to take that sort of leap coming into this year. And when you saw some of the throws that he made on Sunday, I think they were pretty special. And it came against a very good Washington defense that we expect to be 
pretty special this year. I mean, a very, very good team that I think has a chance to be a top-five unit. And when you combine that with the pass protection we saw from the Chargers, some of the contributions from guys like Mike Williams, who have you know, been a little bit up and down over the course of their careers, I think it's easy to get excited about what that team looked like in week one. I think most football fans were with you being excited about Justin Herbert coming into year two, and he was everybody's darling, the guy who's going to take the next big step. But we live in a fantasy football world, and the fantasy football numbers weren't off the charts for Justin Herbert. They have been at times for Keenan Allen, and I noticed you pointed that out, that part of the reason you want to see Herbert excel is so that we get to see more Keenan Allen and unlock everything his potential can give us. What does the average football fan not appreciate about Keenan Allen, Robert? I think he's probably the best pure route runner in the entire NFL. And the ways that he creates separation are unlike any other receiver in the league. If you talk to a receiver in the NFL, for example, I was in Minnesota – in late August. It was the last training camp that I visit and a long conversation with Justin Jefferson that I really enjoyed. And we were talking about guys he watched. The first person out of his mouth was Keenan Allen. When I've talked to Devontae Adams in the past about route running, the first guy out of his mouth is Keenan Allen. He is somebody that within the league has just, he's held in such high esteem. And I would love if he was somebody that was playing on Sunday night football more often or somebody that you're watching an MVP quarterback, so you have to watch him and you just pick up on the subtleties and the nuances of the way he plays the position. I mean, he is unlike any player in the NFL, in my opinion, because he's a slot receiver half the time, and he runs routes like he's 5'11", but he's 6'3". And I just feel like people do not appreciate what goes into his game nearly enough, and I hope that more and more people start to pick up on that as Justin Herbert's star kind of rises. In the underappreciated wide receiver category, there are a lot of people that would throw Allen Robinson in that mix as well. In your opinion, what effect would starting Justin Fields have on Allen Robinson and what he can bring to that offense? I mean, I have to assume that there'd be a little bit more down-the-field action than we saw last week than we've seen with the Bears' offense over the last few years. I mean, Allen Robinson is one of the best 50-50 ball down-the-field receivers in the world, and we just have not gotten a chance to see him as that player with the current construction of the Bears offense and what it's been like over the last couple of years. So I just think it lifts everybody. It lifts everybody from a schematic perspective. It lifts everybody from the types of throws that are on the table. I have to assume it lifts everyone just from a vibe in the room to know that this guy is super talented, what it does for the excitement around your huddle. You know, there are so many different benefits that I think the Bears would receive. I am not one of those people that's just saying, they should throw him out there. Like, absolutely. What are they doing? I don't believe that. I think that there are actual arguments on the other side of it, but I absolutely do think that it would help Allen Robinson. It would help several of the receivers in this offense. Well, on that point then, Robert, I mean, what do you think – what do you think is the best timeline for the Bears to kind of transition to Justin Fields as the starter, and what timeline do you think we'll end up seeing this year? I don't know what the best timeline is. You know, that's hard to say just because I don't think there's a certain benchmark. You know, look at what's happening today. They don't know if Jason Peters is going to practice today. Larry Borum, their fifth-round pick, who was playing left tackle in place of Jason Peters, also got dinged up in that game. Now, the offensive line is a huge, huge concern, and it's really hard to put a timetable on when that would be fixed. I just think you, there isn't a ton of downside in waiting and seeing what that group looks like a month into the season before you throw him out there. So I think it depends on how the Bears perform. You know, if they lose to Cincinnati this weekend and then they lose to Cleveland in week three 
and they're 0-3, and their offense has looked pretty hapless, and they're just getting beat up, and they feel like they need an injection of energy. Maybe it comes after the Cleveland game, but it's so hard to say. They seem steadfast in this plan of keeping Andy Dalton in there because they think it might benefit Justin Fields' overall development. I understand that argument. I also think that Matt Nagy's job security isn't such that he can go 2-15 and 15 this season. So eventually some urgency is probably going to have to creep in. And I want to ask you about their opponent coming up this weekend and specifically the quarterback for Cincinnati. You know, you were talking about Justin Herbert going into year two, what kind of leap he could make. And I know a lot of people are excited to see what Joe Burrow healthy can do in year number two for him. He had a pretty impressive performance, I thought, against a, you know, a Minnesota team coached by Mike Zimmer, known for having a good defense in week one. What did you like about Joe Burrow's debut performance of the year? I thought he looked good. I mean, I thought that he made a lot of really good decisions. I thought that he looked healthy. I thought that he looked confident. I mean, his ball placement is excellent in a lot of situations, which we've come to expect from Joe Burrow. It made me want to watch that offense more. It made me want to see what they can do with that group going forward. And I haven't watched rewatched that game kind of front to back yet. I'm going to, I'm going to plan on doing that here in the next couple of days. But just at first glance, I was absolutely impressed with the way that they played offensively. And you mentioned when we were talking about Justin Herbert, right, with the improvements that the Chargers have made on the offensive line. And is that almost more key for Joe Burrow than anything he's doing himself, just getting better production or protection uh, from the offensive line in front of him in Cincinnati? Yeah, I mean, I think that definitely was a part of it. You know, Riley Reef is not somebody that's going to garner a lot of headlines and the move to go get him wasn't the most exciting thing. But I do think that he's a professional right tackle, which is an upgrade over what they've had over the last couple of years. And then on the interior, it's just, can you stay healthy? You know, Quentin Spain is a workable left guard. He's just had problems staying on the field. So I think that when all those guys are around and, you know, Reef's into his mid-30s, I think he and I are like the same age, when you get deeper into the season, are those guys still going to be in the lineup? That's my concern. It's not what this team looks like week one. It's how deep this offensive line is, if it starts to deteriorate, what this offense starts to look like. But the early returns are certainly encouraging, yes. Robert Mays of the Athletic Football Show writes for the Athletic as well. He joins us today on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. The Bills, the Titans, and the Packers were among the biggest disappointments, however you want to order them, in week number one. And coming off losses like that, there's always that, oh, I wouldn't want to be the next team to play them. Which team are you most confident in as far as a bounce back goes? I'm so unaware of the schedule all the time, so I have no idea which which teams are playing which teams this week. I, I feel good about most of those teams. You know, I think that the Bills and the Packers are going to be just fine. You know, both of those teams, I think, are set up for success. You have all the same component parts that we've seen over the last couple of years. You know, the Packers' offensive line is going to take some time. You know, they have two young guys starting at guard, including a rookie. You know, he gave up a pressure that led to that first Aaron Rodgers interception. They're going to be fine at left tackle without David Bakhtiari, but it's the trickle-down effect. It's the fact that moving Elton Jenkins from guard to tackle makes you worse at guard. So some of those things are going to be stuff to watch until Bakhtiari gets back, but I have a ton of faith in the Packers. I have a ton of faith in the Bills. Go ahead. I think that Pittsburgh's defense is really, really good. And you know they you saw that when they have that front four working, and Melvin Ingram looked excellent. You know, they have some younger guys in the secondary that I think are ascending players. With Tennessee, I'm less certain, just because there are aspects of that offense that are different. You know, they don't have their offensive coordinator they've had over the last couple seasons. You know, they this is a group that hey, they have Julio Jones, but 
for the most part, it's still the same players that we've seen. And now the guy pulling the levers is different. So that's the team I'm most concerned about among those three. I think the Packers and the Bills are probably going to be fine. The Packers are in a bounce-back spot just because they're playing against the Lions. So I feel, in terms of just week two performance, that's definitely the one I would feel best about. Yeah, Bills and Titans have much tougher matchups, including Tennessee heading to Seattle for the Seahawks home opener. You mentioned the Pittsburgh Steelers. There were questions about Ben Roethlisberger last season. They weren't answered to me in week one. I still worry about his ability to push the ball down the field outside the numbers. Do you have those same concerns? And where does that put the ceiling with this Steelers team? I don't think it's that much different than the the team we saw last year. I, I think that they're going to have to uh, get care, be carried by their defense and have the offense make a few scattered plays here and there and lean on the skill position talent that they have. You know, their offensive line is young. You know, there's a hope that maybe they can kind of coalesce as the season goes along. But I absolutely think that you know, their defense is going to be what carries them, and I think that does give them a defined ceiling. I still think they could push to be a playoff team, but you know, there's still a concern about how far they can actually go in what is a pretty loaded AFC. Yeah, and it's certainly a loaded division as well. Baltimore's chance is hindered by their injury situation, but that's still going to be a tough, tough out for anybody, and they're going to push for a playoff spot. That's just what they do. Then there's the Cleveland Browns, who many believe have as deep a roster as any team in the AFC. They came close, and they put on probably the best performance of a losing team that we saw in week one, and yet they still lost. It's Kansas City. No shame in that. Mayfield makes the mistake at the end of the game. Where is your level of faith in Baker Mayfield and his ability to take this team as far as it's capable of going? I think they'll be just fine. I think Baker Mayfield is just fine. I thought he played really well on Sunday. You know, that last interception – it's at the end of a game. You get stepped on. You know, those plays happen. I thought that he threw the ball extremely well on Sunday, and I think that that team is set up to beat pretty much anybody in the AFC and give the Chiefs a run. You know, I, I don't feel any less enthusiastic about the Browns right now than I did coming into Week One, and I was already pretty excited about that. Sticking in that division, you know, it can be almost difficult to focus on the actual football aspects of the Monday night game because there was so much craziness happening towards the end of it. But, you know, everyone focused going into the game on the injuries the Ravens had suffered in the preseason, what effect that would have. But I almost thought that a bigger concern coming out of that game was their offensive line, which looked to struggle at times against the Raiders. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that under how I can't get his name right all week. Alejandro Villanueva is, is an aging player who was not very good last year and is switching positions. So it's not a surprise to see him struggle. He played extremely well. The issue is Ronnie Stanley did not play well either. And maybe we shouldn't be surprised at that. You know, he broke his leg last season. He's coming back, and it, sometimes it takes guys at that position to really settle in and become more comfortable with, with their bodies and how they feel physically. And, you know, he did not look assured in that game. And we talked about that a lot today on the athletic football show with Mitchell Schwartz, who was an all pro tackle for the chiefs, you know, getting into some of the ins and outs of what that's like as an offensive lineman returning from injury. And I think you saw that. So, you know, if they have issues at those two spots over the course of the year, then their offense is going to struggle. You know, there's no way around that. If you have two tackles that you can't feel, reliance upon, including one that's one of the highest paid in the entire NFL, that is a huge problem for any offense. 
And, and, you know, as you say, like, that's a big problem for any offense. There's no easy way to just kind of mask problems on the offensive line, especially at those two positions. But if that is going to be an area of struggle for the Ravens, do you think there's things that they're going to have to do differently on offense than they've than we've seen them do in years past? Yeah, possibly. I, I think that the issue is it's easy to account for one tackle that's struggling. It's hard to account for two. Because you can chip, you can help, you can slide, you can do things to account for one weak link. It's really, really difficult to account for two. So I think that you know we're still going to see the same sort of approach that we've seen from them over the course of the years where it's heavy run game, heavy play action. They're trying to protect the offensive linemen just via scheme and not a lot of straight dropbacks. But other than that, I don't really know what you can do to solve that issue. Ravens have the injuries in the backfield. Niners get one as well. Robert Mays of the Athletic Football Show joining us here today on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Raheem Mostert out for the season. It's been plug and play with running backs in that system, even though I think most of us would agree Mostert is an elite scheme fit. He just does well there. I don't know how well he'd do in other systems. Any worry whatsoever about the Niners' run game losing the guy they wanted to be their lead back? No. I don't have any concern at all. You know, They've been just fine in the past when they've had to play without him. He's struggled with injuries over the last several years, so... I think no matter how that backfield shakes out, which if you're trying to figure it out for fantasy purposes, good luck. It's just a <laughs> minefield that I would not want to navigate and then have been forced to in multiple leagues. But in terms of overall efficiency, I think that they're going to be just fine. Jason Verrett may be a more significant loss for a team that already had questions in its secondary. They're playing in the toughest division in football, in my estimation. How do you handicap the NFC West? <sighs> That's really difficult. I think after losing Barrett and just already having to deal with that, I'd probably do it as Rams, Seahawks, Niners. But I think that the Rams and the Seahawks are very, very close. I was really impressed with the Seahawks in week one. You know, we'll see what happens over the course of the year, but I thought that their defense looked really good. I think that team has a chance to be excellent. So it, they're all bunched up up there. But if I had to rank them, I would do those three and then probably the Cardinals last still, even though the Cardinals played excellent in week one. Yeah, that's the wild card team in the division. And yet most people still have them at the bottom of that pack, probably because of seasons gone by. Thank you very much for your time today, Robert. Continue the excellent work. We will continue to follow you on social media and read your work at The Athletic as well. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, guys. That is Robert Mays joining us here. You can follow him on Twitter, at Robert Mays. It's spelled exactly as you would expect it to be, M-A-Y-S, for his last name. Nobody has an answer to that question. I found it the most fascinating. And, yes, it's all about speculation. It's the NFC West. And you heard the long breath. And, man, I don't know exactly who I can tell you is the favorite. Seahawks and Rams, they both looked excellent in week one. Seahawks on the road. Rams at home, we can debate which was the better team that they did it to. Two teams in Chicago and Indianapolis, they came into those games saying, okay, I don't know what you're going to get offensively, but defensively, these are great teams. And Russell Wilson lit up Indy, and they had a really balanced run attack. Matthew Stafford had his way with the Chicago Bears as well. The injury at corner to Jason Verrett is a big one for San Francisco, and that's a defense that still has some question marks, and those won't go away after what happened late in the game. It was supposed to be, look, they get all their bodies back and they get that great defensive line back and Bosa comes back, they'll be okay. That, to me, is still the biggest question mark as much as people want to point to Jimmy Garoppolo and when Trey Lance is taking over. Well, and you look at 
the passing attacks that they have to go against in that division, right? I mean, you just said what Russell Wilson did on the road against the Colts. We saw what Matthew Stafford is capable of doing in that Rams offense now. Kyler Murray had a fantastic performance. DeAndre Hopkins is there, right? You have to go up against a lot of really, really high-value, dangerous passing attacks when you're playing in the NFC West. It hurts a lot to lose uh, your, you know, one of your top defensive players, your cornerback, Jason Verrett. Now, they still have the pieces on the defensive line to do some things. I don't think it's as if their de- defense is going to fall apart. But, yeah, it's definitely a more significant injury than anything going on at running back, where we've seen time and time again. You can find running backs pretty easily to succeed in Kyle Shanahan's system. Are we underrating the Cardinals' defense? Are we going to look back in a month's time and say, we should have wised up on that after what they did to the Titans? They added J.J. Watt. We saw Chandler Jones get after it. We've known about him for quite some time. Are we underrating the Cardinals' defense? I think it's definitely possible. I think the interesting thing is, I mean, Chandler Jones had five sacks, right? So in a way, you can almost look at it and say, well, that's an outlier. That's not going to happen every week. Yeah, he gets five sacks. That's such a big part of what they were able to do against the Titans. He's forcing turnovers. We know he's really good, but he's not going to be dominant like that every week. So you kind of almost downgrade the Cardinals' defensive performance because of that, because you're not expecting that to repeat all the time. And then I think the other thing is people really have looked to the offensive coordinator turnover in Tennessee, right, with Arthur Smith going Uh, to the Atlanta Falcons, bringing the new OC in and wondering, okay, is the same magic going to be there, even though it's basically the same personnel? I think it's definitely possible that we look back in, you know, six, seven, eight weeks and say, man, this Cardinals defense is really good. We should have known based on what they did against Tennessee. But I also understand why people aren't quite ready to go there yet. I I think it's going to be fascinating, one, obviously, to see what Arizona does this week. But to see what Tennessee does against Seattle as well, going into a tough matchup, if they look better on offense, all of a sudden you start to feel a lot better about what the Cardinals did to them. Hold up. I'm not questioning your analysis, but you don't think Chandler Jones is going to have 85 sacks this year? (laughs) I know. I know. It's a bold prediction. Hot take here. I don't think he is going to average five sacks a game for the whole season. No. Man, clip it. I know. I'm a hater. I'm a hater. It's bulletin board (laughs) material right there. When Chandler Jones racks up number 85, we're going to play this again, Jim. We're going to play this again. Oh, I'll have egg on my face. It's Jamie Dodd. Good hockey talk off the top. Good football talk there. We have another hockey-related question for you. You're going to have to think about it for for a while. It's related to something that happened on this day. You'll find out next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Headliners playlist. We've been telling you about it. We're a long way from the 1980s, but those huge, uplifting, crowd-pleasing tracks, they never get old. You'll find songs like this one on the Headliners playlist. It's on Apple Music. There are more fist pumpers. There's more rock anthems. You can listen to it. You can download. Headliners playlist on Apple Music. Scott Rintoul, Jamie Dodd. The text submissions continue to pour in. We ask you multiple questions every single day. We have a very interactive fan base, Jamie, and... We often get some very good responses and some that are debated among listeners on this show. We asked off the top of the show, okay, Calgary, Vancouver, Edmonton, you've seen the general managers in the Alberta team's cases come out the last couple of days and say, hey, here's where we're at. Ken Holland, time to win is now. Brad Treliving, confident about his team, but we weren't able to make changes. We tried to, and that's kind of where we sit right now. So we're asking where the most pressure lies. I'll give you just a taste of one of them coming in i think calgary is the most pressure by far says this unsigned texter if edmonton does poorly they switch coaches and try again if vancouver does poorly 
they switch GMs and coach and try again. But Calgary, they probably fire the GM, they probably fire the coach, and they tear the team down. I think they're the only one that goes into full rebuild, says this texter. Yeah, and that's a, that's a fair point. Again, with the the idea of potentially tearing down just the roster, not just the coaching staff, not just the front office operation, but actually the roster as well, that probably only exists in Calgary. Uh, this one unsigned to the 960-960 inbox says, the Oilers have the most pressure to win, two of the best players in the game, and no playoff success. They have to win a round. Then it's Calgary. They need bounce backs from the top guys. And he also says, the media fan pressure in Vancouver right now is crazy too. So yeah, as we've been saying and kind of the genesis of the conversation, no matter which you have as number one, I think we can all agree the pressure is extremely high in all three of these Western Canadian cities. West End Mike looks at it this way. He texts in, Vancouver has the most potential to significantly improve this year. Edmonton has the most potential to significantly regress this year. Calgary will continue to underwhelm, says West End Mike. What's your reaction to Mike? I think I, I agree with the idea that Vancouver has the most room to improve because they've made such dramatic changes to their roster. And I also think, you know, we talk about the guys in Calgary needing a bounce back, right? Like Sean Monaghan, Johnny Gaudreau. He had a pretty good season last year. But you know what I mean? I think the potential for bounce backs from Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson is very significant, right? So the Canucks could get a boost from bringing in new pieces, bringing in Connor Garland and Jason Dickinson and maybe OEL, but they also have the chance for some significant internal improvement from Pedersen, from Quinn Hughes. So yes, I do think they have, you know, a lot of room to improve. Now you got to keep in mind their results last year were very, very poor. So of course they have a lot of room to improve, but they've made the changes necessary too. All right, we'll continue that conversation. Want you in on it, 969-60-650-650. But we want to introduce another hockey topic here. There's always a reason. We just happen to find an historic one today because it's been 34 years since this happened. Gretzky to Lemieux. Jamie, need I say more? Greg, roll it. Our Chuck wins it in. Here's Lemieux poking at the center. Lemieux ahead to Gretzky. Has Murphy with him on a two-on-one to Lemieux. And on goal, he shoots, he scores! Mario Lemieux with 1.26 remaining. There are some highlights from years gone by that you know exactly what it looks like. You can watch it in your mind as we play it on the radio. That is one of them, Jamie. Most of our listeners have seen that hundreds of times. They're happy to consume it again. You and I yeah. did a, a thing called CSI Sports when the pandemic first hit. Hey, what are we going to do? There's no sports for three, four, yep. five months. We had no idea. And we did something called CSI Sports, and we would break down some of the greatest plays in history across the world of sports. That was the first one we did. That was the first one that we wanted to really dig into. Yeah, one of the most iconic, famous, celebrated goals, whatever you want to say, in hockey history. Arguably the two greatest players of all time, connecting on it, winning gold for Canada, all of it. Just, you know, it, look, I was one years old at the time, so I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, I remember it. Obviously, I don't, but it's so famous that even if you weren't alive at the time, even if you weren't watching hockey at the time, you still kind of feel like you remember it because you've seen it so much and you understand the story behind it. It was such a great moment, and it was such a great series. And it leads to this question, and yes, you have to compare apples to oranges here. And this probably depends on where you fall generation-wise. 
what is the greatest hockey series ever played? That one, to me, Jamie, is. Now, I'm only 12 years old at the time when that Canada Cup happens in 1987, but we're talking about three consecutive 6-5 games, and it's not because, wow, these guys couldn't play any kind of defense or the goalies were terrible. It wasn't that. It was the amount of talent assembled on the ice. It was the style of hockey, too, and maybe it depends what kind of style you like, but that, to me, is the greatest hockey series I've ever seen played. We can compare it to some of the great NHL playoff series. We can compare it to 1972 and the Summit Series, which is massive for geopolitical reasons beyond hockey, and we all know that. What is the greatest hockey series ever played? Maybe not your favorite hockey series ever played, but we just talk about the hockey. You tell me as a listener, 960-960-650-650, and Jamie, I'll pose the question to you as well. What's the greatest hockey series ever, play, ever played? So I do think it almost has to be an international series just because the stakes feel so much higher when it's country on country and when there's international pride at stake. Look, obviously the Stanley Cup is a huge deal, and that's a huge payoff. So, yeah, Stanley Cup playoff series, the stakes are massive there as well. But I do think they hit another notch in international. And we don't really have international series anymore, right? We have tournaments, we have one-offs, we have gold medal games, but we don't have series like we did in the Canada Cup, like we did in the Summit Series. So, I mean, even though I was not, you know, either alive or really consciously watching hockey for either of these, I kind of think it has to be one of either the 87 Canada Cup or the 72 Summit Series. And if you want to if you want to just focus on what happened on the ice and the level of hockey, the quality of hockey, the skill assembled, then it's going to be the 1987 Canada Cup. If you want to talk about the larger significance, and I don't even just mean geopolitically, but just for hockey, right, and for the kind of myth-making of hockey in Canada, then you're probably going to lean towards the Summit Series. Now, we can get into some of the best Stanley Cup playoff series as well. It's just hard for any of those to unseat these massive international contests for me. So I would argue with your point, even though I've chosen an international series, I would argue with your point that it has to be an international series. I think it can be an NHL playoff series because I think it depends what kind of brand of hockey you really like. And we know that an NHL playoff series, a Canada Cup series between Russia and Canada was three games. So there are others that will say, hold on a second. Yep. Give me a seven-game series. It's got to be something that goes longer than just three games. That's why I'll discount the 1987 Canada Cup. It's an eight-game series in 1972. The hockey, we didn't know as much about the USSR, about Russia, uh, everything that was on that side of the Cold War. We didn't know much. It was faceless robots. That's what it was perceived. And it, it predates me by three years on this planet as well. But I've done my research. I've watched that series. I happen to own it. I know what the hockey was like, and I know what the implications of that series were. If we're comparing some of the great playoff series that we've seen NHL-wise in our lifetime, I've got a couple I'll throw into the mix, even though I chose 1987. And I, you know what? I want to know if Kelly Rudy's listening today because he played in <laughs> one of the he played in 1987 one of the great NHL playoff series in that Capitals Islanders series that went to the Easter the miracle on Easter weekend, like that went forever. The Easter epic, if you will. We've talked about that game before. So how does he compare that to 1987 Canada Cup? All of those different things. Here are some that I would also throw in the mix. The 2009 Cup final between Detroit and Pittsburgh. The rematch. And this is the yep. one the Penguins get over in. That was a sensational series. The 19... 
1993 Islanders-Penguins series where the Islanders, Ray Ferraro, David Volek, Pierre Turgeon, they upset the Pens. That Islanders series against the Penguins is one that I would throw in as a great, great series. And one more recent vintage. Do you remember the Western Conference Final in 2014? It's the Kings. It's the Blackhawks. It featured goals. It featured hits. It featured comebacks. That sucker went right down to the end of Game 7. Those are three of the greatest NHL playoff series I can remember. So the 2014 Western Conference Finals was on my list as well, Scotty. Especially just look at the runs those two teams were in the middle of, right? You know, they dominated the Stanley Cup for a period of five or six years there, and that was their best playoff meeting. It's in the Western Conference Finals, so it's as high as the stakes could be between those two teams, obviously, because they can't meet in the Stanley Cup. And it really did feel like the two best teams in hockey kind of at the height of their powers going at it. That's a series that made my list for sure. I'll go back a little bit. Well, not that far, just into the 90s. But And this one, it's not because necessarily of the hockey played in it, but I think it will stand out for a lot of people. And that's 1996, the Colorado Avalanche versus the Detroit Red Wings, right? And the Avalanche were the defending Stanley Cup champions. The Red Wings would win the series. They'd go on to win the Cup. So two fantastic teams. But this one also was coming only a couple of months after that famous brawl that really kick-started the rivalry. And it was a wild series. It was intense. There was all kinds of shenanigans happening on the ice. Again, maybe not the prettiest hockey. You know, it was only six games, so it wasn't a seven-game epic. But when I just think of playoff series that stick out in my mind that I have kind of indelible memories of, that one is very near the top of the list for me. We've got other people weighing in, including Greg Ballack, who's back at Mission Control today. He says 2009 Cup Final gets his vote. It was a sensational series. I threw it into the mix, even though I've selected 1987. Unsigned Texter says, as a kid, I loved the original Canada Cup where Daryl Sittler scores the winner. Maybe not the best hockey. However, it brought me into international hockey. Still remember it to this day. We do have people, including Marcus and Gibson's Jamie, weighing in on those Avs Red Wings series. We've had a couple of votes from that. Marcus saying, greatest rivalry ever in the NHL. Great series. I don't think it's the greatest rivalry ever in the NHL, but it's certainly one of the great rivalries in the NHL. I would agree with that. I think that's great. Yeah, I think it sticks out certainly for me as one of the defining rivalries and that, you know, you know, I was 12 years old for that or 10 years old for that 96 series. Right. So that's kind of again, as I said, you're watching it. You almost can't believe what you're seeing. It's the first time you've really seen a rivalry and a series like that. So it really sticks in your head. Uh, Scoot texts in or excuse me, Hacksaw texts in. He's addressing you, Scott. He just misspelled your name. I see. But this okay, is from Hacksaw. He says Scoot. three games do- doesn't really qualify as a series. Therefore, it's the 72 Summit Series for, for Hacksaw and then all the rest, he says. So that's an interesting point. Okay, yeah, the hockey was amazing in the 87 Canada Cup, but only three games. Does that really get it into the conversation? I have no problem putting it there, but an interesting argument from Hacksaw. Brad from Pomo happens to be a Bruins fan, so you know where he's probably going with this. 2011 Stanley Cup Finals, close series, lots of compelling stories around the games, not the least of which is the riot. Series still resonates today. Also, the right team won, which is obviously a very unpopular opinion in the lower (laughs) mainland from Brad from Pomo. Here's the one thing I would say. If the games in Boston had been closer and the game seven had been more of an epic, if you will, um, a super memorable game, then maybe that series would qualify. He's right about the storylines in the series, but the actual series itself, I don't think it makes it. 
Yeah, I agree. Because too many of the games were blowouts, right? And even Game 7 wasn't very entertaining, right? It was just kind of a grind. The Canucks weren't in it really at any point. So you have a bunch of blowouts. Game 7, not close. Not as exciting as some other Game 7s we've seen. It was a fascinating series. And from a media perspective, from a fan perspective, it was interesting. But, you know, if you're talking about best hockey series, I don't think it makes it there. Victor says 1994 semifinals, Rangers and Devils. It's a good submission by you, Victor. That's the Messier Guarantee Series. Rangers are down 3-2 in that series. It's when the Devils are really coming into their own. Rangers obviously get over. We know what happened in the final. Someone else has nominated that series as well. Someone said, hey, 72 Summit Series and the 1994 Stanley Cup Final. That was a great series. Rangers and Canucks, yep. again, a painful <laughs> A painful Stanley Cup final loss for Vancouver fans to reminisce about here, but it was an incredible series between the Canucks and the Blue Shirts. And we've got uh, another 1994 series nominated. Actually, I was curious if this one would come in, given who we're talking to. Corey says, I'm biased, but my pick is 94 Canucks versus Flames. Knocks down 3-1 in the series. They roar back. Burray scores uh, in overtime, of course, to win it. He says in the Saddle Dome, you could hear a pin drop. That's from Corey texting into the Calgary inbox, but he is an ex Canucks fan so I don't know maybe he's a Flames fan now but I was curious if we would get the 94 Canucks Flames series in uh, this one's come in a couple of times as well from Calgary John and Calgary text in my fa- my favorite NHL playoff series was the Flames and the Oilers in 1986 it was war from beginning to end says John it was a great series and it's best remembered by many for the way it ended with Steve Smith banking the puck off yep. Grant Fuhr into the net. And that's how the Flames get over in that series in that Battle of Alberta. But it was a great series. And those series between the Flames and Oilers back in the day, whew, they were so good. They really were. The person who texted in, I can't remember the name, uh, Jamie, about 94 Flames Canucks. It's first yep. round, so it probably doesn't get enough hype. It was a great series. Those last three it was games, a great they, series. All, they all go to overtime. Flames up 3-1. Can't get it done. Kind of a flip of what happened in 1989 without all of the different overtimes involved. It was a great series. It really was. Yeah, and I'm not surprised that we had uh, some submissions come in for that one. We got another Flames-Oilers one. This one, 1991, says one of the greatest series ever played. The Oilers won that one, but they were so worn out, they got blown out in the next round. Fair. Yep, that's fair. Victor also nominating the 1987 finals, Oilers versus Fly. That was a great Stanley Cup final as well back in the day. Goes to game seven. Oilers win it 3-1. Ron Hextel grabs the con Smythe despite losing the series. Let's get to what they're saying. The question we asked off the top of the show, three Western Canadian teams, which has the most pressure to succeed this season? Some would say Edmonton. I would not be one of them. Connor McDavid, that's where his vote would be cast. We told you about what he said. Let's have a listen. He's doing the NHL media tour right now. Here's what he had to say about this upcoming season and the group they've assembled in Edmonton. Definitely think the time is now. I think uh, I'm 24 years old. You know, Nursey and, and, and Dry are you know, 25, 26 years old. Nuge, you know, 28. So, you know, the the, the old excuse that you know, we're young guys is, is no longer. So, um, you know, for us as a group, I think uh, um, the time is now to, to start uh, to start really pushing this thing. You know, 
Kenny's done his job and gone out and got pieces and, and, and added some things. And um, like I said, it's on us now to, uh, to put the thing together. Are we sure he's only 24 years old? Doesn't it feel like he's older than that? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it really, really does. Feels like he's been around, and you even just hear him talk. He sounds like he's 34 a little bit, right? Like, just low energy. Man, we got to get it done. We're not young anymore. You know, this, the time is now. Like, yeah, not a lot of youth, youthful enthusiasm left in Connor McDavid there. And, again, we're comparing apples to oranges big time here, but there are certain prospects that – don't get into the NHL till they're 23, 24 yep. years old, and you go, okay, well, it's taken a little longer than I expected, but it seems like this player's coming into his own now. And Connor McDavid's 24, and he's got all the individual hardware, all of that stuff. Yeah, I understand why he feels that way, and the expectation because of who he is and because of how the greats of the game always seem to get theirs, that pressure is going to be built into whatever he does. And he has done... Seemingly everything humanly possible in the regular season. We can talk about whether or not he's gotten a fair shake opinion-wise in the playoffs. We talked about the penalties and the lack that were called against the Winnipeg Jets last year and whether or not the officiating changed too much. 24 years old. I'm, I know it. I know it. But when I hear him say it, it still doesn't make sense to me. No, you're right. I mean, people like a 23 year old can come in and win a job out of training camp and say, oh, hey, a young, you know, a, a new young player cracking the lineup. Exciting. Let's see what he can do in his first shot in the NHL. And yeah, Connor McDavid has has won everything individually. It's possible to win already by the age of 24. Zip back to the gridiron quickly. Thomas Dimitrov, Canadian who was recently in charge of the Atlanta Falcons. He doesn't hold that GM title anymore in the ATL. He was on brother from another podcast which airs on nbc peacock and had this to say about urban meyer and how people view him in jacksonville there's always going to be a jealousy and an insecurity about a man like urban meyer nick saban chip kelly whoever they are coming in with a lot of cash from a college game stepping into a league that is really steeped in tradition and a, and a tight-knit group no question about that so there are a lot of people out there looking at Urban Meyer and have looked at a lot of college coaches who have stepped in this game the way that Urban has, hoping for him not to succeed. Unfortunate as it is, it is the way it is. And you've been reading it, whether it's Lock and Four reporting it or other people talking about it, there are a lot of people on their edges, the edges of their seats trying to figure out what it's going to take for Urban to look at USD and go and replace Clay Helton there. Some of it, Jamie, is for very selfish reasons. Other other people don't want Urban Meyer to succeed because they think, ah, you should have to cut your teeth at the NFL level and you shouldn't be able to just walk into a job the way he walked in. I agree that there is, in some cases, a jealousy, in some cases, a selfishness that comes with the way people perceive what he's doing with the Jags. Well, and I think also... Yeah, there are people kind of, you know, popping popcorn and, and taking a look at this and hoping it turns into a train wreck because people kind of enjoy looking at train wrecks in the NFL, right? And it would be a high-profile example of somebody coming and failing. And there are always – and look, Urban Meyer, he's done plenty of things at the college ranks to, you know, make people not be the biggest fan of him, right? He's got that arrogance about him. I think there are always going to be people who would be, like, fine with him failing at the NFL level and going back to college. It is this weird thing we do. I'm not saying you have to be a fan of Urban Meyer, but we do it with great players as well. They have a certain yep. amount of success, and they look dominant. People do this with Connor McDavid. 
Connor McDavid is incredible, and people want to see him fail. They want to see the Oilers fail more specifically in the cases of many of our listeners, but they want to see it go down that road of, well, I guess he didn't get another playoff series again. Well, and I mean, how you can just feel the anticipation for a potential Connor McDavid trade request out of Edmonton, right? And again, part of that is, you know, fans in Vancouver, fans in Calgary, they would love to see the Oilers fall on tough times. But I also just think there's that appetite for chaos. And there's that appetite again for kind of a train wreck situation because it can be really entertaining. I get it. But yes, when you do reach that level of success, people start to come out and say, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing (laughs) the downfall there either. Some really good texts are coming in. We'll filter them in through this program. It's our weekly visit with Tim McAuliffe. It's Midweek McAuliffe next on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. A little bit of news today. Cleveland Browns fans won't love this, although they played really well without him. No OBJ for week two against the Houston Texans, Jamie. Yeah, not great news, but, you know, as... He still has the name recognition, but he's just not really the focal point of that offense. He really hasn't been at any point in his tenure in Cleveland, and they've shown, yeah, they can win just fine, or they can play at least just fine without Odell Beckham. Schwartz looked pretty good out of the slot, rookie out of Auburn in that game. Would have been nice for the Browns if he came up with that catch late in the game, but he flashed at times. They'll be just fine. We haven't talked a lot of baseball here today. Jays lost last night, one of those games that is bound to happen. Really good team that played really good defense. Tampa Bay, man, they made some really good catches. And it's one of those games, Jamie, if you watch enough baseball, you know this. Hell, hell, if you play softball, you know this. Sometimes you hit a ball really well and just finds a glove. And that happened to the Jays on a couple of occasions last night. Didn't get a bad start from Jose Barrios. Bigger question now, is he going to be okay? Is he going to be okay? Well, he looked really good last night. He was great, I thought. And, yeah, that's, you know, for for a guy you went out and paid a pretty significant price to get at the trade deadline. Yeah, he's around next year as well, but he's really been rounding into form. That could be a big blow down the stretch. You know, you start to look ahead to a potential playoff series at some point. You would really, really like to have Berrios in there. So that's probably the biggest story coming out of last night. Yeah, it probably is. Red Sox win, Yankees win. If you're a baseball fan, it doesn't get any better than this. Dead heat. Dead heat with 17 games to go. In the case of the Red Sox, it's 16. There's a game in hand there, but this is awesome, man. Yeah, literally three teams tied fighting for two spots. It's, you know, we always kind of, especially in baseball, I think there's an element of traditionalists when the field is expanded, the postseason field. There's always some grumbling, right? But you also understand why Major League Baseball does it, right? Because now you have this scenario where three teams, including, you know, probably the two most high-profile teams in the sport, the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox fighting for these two playoff spots. It's a dream scenario for the final two weeks plus of the season. I said one game in hand. It's two games in hand. Pardon my math. The Red Sox have played two more games than both the Yankees and the Blue Jays. If you want to compare schedules down the stretch, the toughest one is the New York Yankees in part because they'll play a three-game set against both the Red Sox and the Blue Jays. Jays and Red Sox do not play each other. Obviously, that means the Jays play the Yankees one more time. They'll finish up today. It's an afternoon game, by the way. On the eastern side of the Rockies, we're going to carry that game for you live. Rubber match of this series. I thought John Morosi made a really good point, and everybody's talked about this Jays run, us included, how good they've been this month. They're now 12-2 and in the month of September. If they just win their series, they're getting in. They don't have yep. to be 
seven, eight, ten in a row, nothing like that. If they win the series they have left, they get into the playoffs. That's pretty simple math. And doesn't mean it's going to be easy to knock off Tampa Bay today or or the Yankees if they're in, in better form when they see them a little bit later on here this month, Jamie. But that's a pretty fair way to look at it. Yeah, you got to take care of business, right? You just got to you got to play like a playoff team, really, down the stretch to get in. You're right; they've already done the improbable, really impressive part by rattling off that streak. Now, I think just just play like you belong, play like a playoff team. On the subject of taking care of business, that's what this guy does. He's Tim McAuliffe, host of Tim and Friends. He did some business this week. Timmy, thanks for doing this, buddy. How are you? TCB, a little taking care of business. Uh, I'm good. How are you guys? Hey, we're doing very well, and I see you flexed your muscles. You brought one of your OGs back to this country, one of the score originals. You brought him to Sportsnet. Cabby is back. Yeah, I wish I had the uh, the wherewithal to actually make that flex, uh, but I was just honored to be a part of the announcement uh, that he was back in Canada and uh, super excited uh, because, like, and, and as a fan and as a dude, like, He's just a very good human being, and to have him on our team is, is very exciting. So very cool to have uh, a dude that I worked a ton. We started as interns together, I believe, in 1999, uh, <laughs> which is even crazy to say. Maybe it was 2000. Um, but to have him back on the team, his energy, his enthusiasm, his um, work ethic, like he looks like on the screen, like he's joking around, but he edited all those pieces. He put them together. When we worked at the score together, uh, he would travel the country because we both believed in making sure that we weren't uh, uh, the Toronto Sports Network. Uh, or uh, I know the reputation uh, that we have in Vancouver. So he, he was like, okay, we got to travel. How do we travel? And he would literally set up deals on his own with places where he would film in like a club or a bar to get the trip paid for and then go talk to the Canucks and then go talk to the Calgary Flames or the Edmonton Oilers. Like uh, the hustle was real back in the day. And I don't know how many people actually recognize that that's what he was doing uh, when he was filming in the clubs uh, as cabbie on the street way back in the day. Well, those of us who've been in the business for a while, if you know, you know. And as, yeah. as fun as it looks, you're right. There's a lot of work that goes into that. Obviously, you guys assembled a great deal of talent. I don't need to go down a whole score rabbit hole today. Maybe we'll save that for a future episode of this conversation. But, Tim, the other thing that strikes me is that you guys were allowed to create. You were given a blank canvas and yeah. said, you're going to fail a bunch of times, but give her. And that doesn't happen at every place. You know, we get a lot of listeners. There are viewers that probably – hit you up on social media and say, oh, why don't you guys try this? I'm not talking about where you are currently, but you've worked in operations where you don't have that latitude. Yeah, without a doubt. And and I just think, I, I'll say right now, like Sportsnet doesn't have that kind of latitude that we had at the score. Um, they expect so much more from anyone stepping in. And for me, like I would, op- like if you gave me the opportunity, and I think we can see it a little bit on Tim and Friends where we're giving people who haven't, um, been on national TV a whole bunch, uh, the opportunity to sit on a round table or come on as a guest and things like that. I, I think you need to do way more of that. I think you need to throw as much poop at the wall and see what sticks because you never really know. And I think the score was a great example of that. And it ended up pretty like, you know, listen, I got on air when I wasn't ready to be on air on the score. And if you were watching around that time, you would probably agree with me. Uh, but we got, 
um, and we got opportunities. And because of it, you know, Cabby was down in the States for a while, uh, made his market TSN. Adnan Verk, um, you know, has hit the highest of the highs on ESPN doing college football and now works for MLB Network. Um, you know, Renee Paquette turned into Renee Young. There's just Martin Geyer, James Sabalski, like roll through it. There was a lot of talent there and it was because they were given opportunities. So I believe in just giving folks opportunities. What happened to that Sid guy you used to work with? I don't know. Uh, someone told me he's working on a morning show somewhere. I'll look into it. We'll get our crack staff. Tim McAuliffe joining us here as I turn things over to Jamie Dodd for some real sports talk in this segment. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, shout out to uh, getting on air before you're ready to get on air. I can appreciate that <laughs> one, Tim. So <laughs> I, lo- I love to hear I, it. Any place that will do that, I'm all about it. We all can. I, I disagree. Yeah, it's true. We all can. And I disagree with it in your case uh, if you were making that record. Well, I appreciate it. You were the one that gave me. Uh, the chuckles per 60. So I'm I'm good with that. Any, any athlete that's that right. gives me the chuckles per 60. That's right. I'm going to be, I'm going to be living off that one for a while, I think Tim, but like, I guess we should get into some actual sports talk. Uh, yeah. The blue Jays, they, I mean, what happened? They lost, they got shut out last night. Are you ready to tear the bandwagon down and, and call yeah. for Charlie Montoyo's head now? You no, know, you know, what's funny is yesterday I started the show with some uh, very thoughtful quote that I stole, I think off of the calm app. Um, which was the best thing to do when it's raining is to let it rain. And I meant it in all Jays fans' cases, like this is an unbelievable run, please enjoy it. But by no means did it guarantee you a playoff spot. Like there's still baseball to be played. And this is honestly why I sometimes enjoy the pennant race or in this this case the wild card race more than the playoffs because what we're getting here is basically – like 20 games of playoffs. Like it could be that close down the wire. And just because the Jays reeled off an unbelievable run doesn't mean they're making the playoffs. It gave them a little more leeway uh, when it comes to these last, you know, couple weeks here, but by no means to guarantee anything. Um, that said, losing two nothing to uh, a Tampa team. That's really damn good. Like 90 wins good already. Um, I think it's 90 and 55 the Rays are right now. Like, this is a really good team that they are facing. Uh, and I think uh, losing to – this is a big game today. And it's, a, it's an afternoon affair in Toronto. Um, and we're going to come on out of it at, on Tim and Friends. But uh, people are going to be watching the Red Sox game and people are going to be watching the Yankees game too. So, like, this is what we're in for. And let it rain, man. I, I'm, I'm all for this. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been great, especially the last couple of nights having, you know, the doubleheader with the Jays playing the Rays and then the late game or, you know, seven o'clock out here yep. uh, with the Red Sox in Seattle has been fantastic. You know, you make a great point about, OK, you look at how the race is setting up here. The Jays, the Yankees, the Red Sox all basically tied fighting for two spots. You're in this race with two of the kind of traditional powerhouses, your, your hated rivals. It really couldn't set up much better. And look, I'm a huge baseball fan. I'm dialed in for the most part, you know, 162 games a year. But I don't know if there's any sport that has a bigger gap between kind of the dog days of the regular season and the final stretch of the playoff race. Because really, I mean, every game, not just for your team, but for the other teams too, is is basically appointment viewing at this point. Without a doubt. And that's, that's what separates baseball. And once you come to appreciate that, I think it takes your, like, baseball fandom to a new level like 
and, and it doesn't happen every year. Like this is the crazy part of it. Like it'll happen somewhere um, in the bigs, but when your team or there's a vested interest and listen, uh, Seattle's in and around there. And I know that there are fans of, of the Mariners in Vancouver too. Um, when your team's in and around something like this, um, it's the best. Every game means something you need there. Um, every pitch means something. Uh, moving that runner over means something. It almost turns into a little bit of a different game. And um, my beef with, you know, best of fives in baseball is you don't necessarily get that. Best of sevens, you're still stretching it. We get this for a 20-game span, and uh, it is, even if you're not a baseball fan, I implore you, just tune in, especially if you get a good crowd in a stadium that understands what's going on here. Um, you can kind of get lost in the nuance of the game, and that's what makes baseball special. Yeah, it's fun right now. Tim McAuliffe joining us as he does every single Wednesday. Jamie mentioned the name Charlie Montoyo, and I wonder mm-hmm. if there's a Ned Yost conversation here. I don't know what the Blue Jays <laughs> are going to do this postseason, but I think there is something to it. Last night they lose. Well, why didn't you pinch hit this guy? Why were you using that guy in this situation? I feel like if the Blue Jays win, many will view it in spite of Charlie. If they lose, it's going to be that a fair assessment. Never, but it is always the case in baseball. Um, there are so many decisions that are made along the way. I mean, Kevin Cash is widely regarded as one of the best managers in all of baseball, is he not? And last year he got absolutely roasted for his dis- and may have lost a pitcher for his decision to take out Blake Snell dealing. And I, uh, I think that when it's your team, you kind of have the blinders on. And I understand it, uh, but make no mistake, Charlie Montoyo is not making those decisions in of himself. The new age baseball manager has a book, and he knows what management wants him to do as well. And he's constantly um, playing that balance of what my gut tells me and what the book tells me and what I'm going to do in this moment. And Charlie Montoyo was also hired not to take this team to – Uh, the World Series, but to take this team from young, uh, hype-ridden squad bouncing in in actuality, uh, bouncing around all of North America with their home and keep it positive and keep it fresh so that they weren't ruined before they got good. And they got good quicker than most people thought that they would. And so uh, to me, when you're doing all of that, like when you're putting all that together, Charlie Montoyo has done a great job. But if you're talking about every day, change the pitcher, pinch hit here, there are mistakes that Montoyo has made. I don't know if he's made them with full autonomy, but he will be held to that just as Kevin Cash was, just as Joe Torre was. Every manager in baseball um, history has been plagued by if it doesn't, if the decision doesn't work, it's more glaring in their sport than almost every other. Like think about like you, every pinch hit, every substitution of a pitcher, every call of a bullpen, that's like a fourth down conversion or a third down conversion in the CFL. And you get them like now four or five times a game, six times a game. Uh, if there were that many decisions to be made in the football field, you'd see a lot more football coaches, uh, you know, getting fired for those decisions, but it just, it just happens a lot in baseball. 
Well, I won't take you to football coaches. I'll go hockey coaches instead. You mentioned pressure. There's a lot of pressure in Western Canada this season. I want to see where your barometer takes you. Calgary, Vancouver, Edmonton. Which organization do you believe has the most pressure this season? Okay, let me just say almost every Canadian team has, it feels like, an inordinate amount of pressure on them. The Habs, even after going to a cup final, have a lot of pressure given what happened in the offseason. Leafs, of course. I'd say the Edmonton Oilers are the answer to that, and it was Connor's comments yesterday that put me at that point. And listen, I think there's a lot of pressure on Tree Living in Calgary. I think Jim Benning has lived under pressure in Vancouver, and it's time for, I feel like, Vancouver to take the next step. Uh, I also feel like the Pacific Division might give an opportunity for Calgary and Vancouver to take those steps. In Edmonton, it's not just a step. They need to get to another level. And Connor McDavid saying, like, it's, it's now. It's not future. It's not like I wonder, and maybe you guys could. There's been a lot of pushback in Edmonton about, oh, Connor will leave. Why is this always Connor will leave? For the first time, when he says it's now, I thought, what happens if it isn't? Is this the, was that the opening salvo to if it doesn't work? Connor leaves and for that I believe that the most pressure is in Edmonton Scotty. Interesting because I think that's the storyline next season I don't get the sense he's out. I get the sense the coaching move would be made first there but maybe we see it differently. I mean how how many coaching moves do you get? How many GM moves do you get? Like you know I thought Todd McClellan was an answer um do you do you disagree with Edmonton? Because I think there's pressure a little out of places. But, man, I, I just – when I looked at Connor McDavid making a statement, because I don't see Connor McDavid make a lot of statements, um, it shook me a little bit. I was like, this, this feels a little bit different to me, and I wonder if that's not the opening salvo. Maybe I'm wrong on my timing, uh, and I'll accept that, or maybe I'm just wrong, period but it got me think there is absolutely no doubt that it got me thinking unlike I would have uh, if he had just gone out there and said to Connor, Connor McDavid like things like we're going to go out there and try really hard and the opportunities in front of us. And uh, I like the additions of Zach Hyman or Heimsey or whatever the hell he called them. Cause he's a hockey player <laughs> <laughs> um, and nursey and, and Dunkey. And, you know, they, they made some changes. Uh, I don't know how much better they are. Uh, this time around and that like that to me feels like a a powder keg if they don't get something done this year it's the kind of question tim where we're looking at these three teams it almost doesn't feel like there's a wrong answer because you start talking about any of them and you can see you know as you say how things would turn out really poorly and how big changes would need to be made you know i think I said Vancouver was under the most pressure. Maybe that's just because I live here or whatever reason. But I just look at the general managers in all three cases. I feel like Ken Holland, because he's Ken Holland and he has that track record and he hasn't been there that long yet, I feel like he can survive a a bad year. I don't see how Jim Benning can survive a bad year, given everything that's happened in his tenure, the temperature the market was at at different points last year. It just feels like truly it is this year or bust for Benning. 
I mean, the, the signing of Elias Patterson kind of hangs over any conversation yep. that we're going to have about Vancouver and how you get this young talent uh, nailed in as Kyle Dubas um, struggled with and still struggles with to this day. Um, so I feel like, yes, there is always going to be that pressure, but I also feel like, and I know that Vancouver is historically impatient uh, to be nice about it, but don't you feel like the team's trajectory is going in the right direction? Like, I feel like you've got good young talent in that city that eventually will find uh, a way to be better. Like, there's no, oh, I wish we had, you know, you have a lot of the pieces that you need, and now it's just getting a way to put it all together. And obviously, fitting the pieces in financially has become a huge part of what the NHL is. Uh, but I feel like Vancouver's on the right trajectory. And I, I'm, I'm, and, and maybe because I can say that and then say at the end of the year, well, I'm waiting for the breakthrough. And you guys are like, well, the breakthrough hasn't come through. Like, we haven't seen that breakthrough. There needs to be some sort of breakthrough. And I think this year, given what's in that Pacific Division, you're going to see that breakthrough. Well, and I think the difference, again, on the pressure conversation between Vancouver and Calgary, you're right. Vancouver has pieces in place that you still think you can build on. Even if things don't go well this year, you still look at Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes and Thatcher Demko as building blocks for a team. You just might need somebody else to put the other pieces in around those building blocks. Whereas I look at Calgary, and if things don't go well for Calgary this year, you know, you're not just talking about changing the coach and the general manager – you're talking about up. potentially a full a full rebuild there, which you're not looking at Blow in Vancouver. It Blow it up like you knew they would call the crib, same number, same hood. It's all good. Like, just quote Biggie. <laughs> uh, and I, I thought we were going to get there after last year. Um, it, it's, I, I understand the ramifications of Calgary. Um, and I think that if you, were to, if you were to ask me to rank, I would say uh, Edmonton, Calgary, Vancouver I just know the fan base that I'm talking to in Vancouver and and it's hard to tell them uh, or tell you guys be a little bit more patient I think you've got more pieces than anybody else because uh, frankly they saw those pieces in other places uh, maybe even specifically Toronto and said yeah there were pieces there and they haven't got out of the first round what the hell does that mean you just want it to happen and, uh, you know, I, 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 again, I think the Pacific division is going to give a real opportunity here and, uh, Vancouver might be right there when all is said and done, depending on how the signings go. Well, and Calgary's an interesting Jimmy. situation and, and I understand why there's frustration from our listeners. Cause obviously we're broadcasting both markets mm-hmm. when they see mm-hmm. the article from Eric Francis yesterday, which is Brad for living, basically saying, we wanted to do something, but we couldn't find deals that made sense. It's not like the Leafs who came out and said, we're going to run it back. You can agree or disagree, but this right. is what we're doing. It was Terrell Living saying, oh, we didn't necessarily want to run it back, but it looks like we're going to have to run it back. But that was and, – and so why can't we come to the – why can't we come to this conclusion on our own? And, it, like, if I do it from Toronto, I'll get killed – um, from especially the Western provinces where 
people are so invested into their team and love their team at such a high level that I enjoy it thoroughly. But like, isn't that the truth? Like, isn't the truth that not a lot of people want to play in Edmonton? Uh, Maybe a few more want to play in Calgary. Like there are still struggles. Like the Toronto Raptors can't get anybody like that still hasn't been settled. This playing in Canada for whatever reason, whether it's, whether whether it's taxes or beyond, there seems to whether it's pressure, um, whether it's anonymity, um, whether it's the lack of golf courses or Wi-Fi in Winnipeg. Like, let's call it as we see it. It's harder. You think Zach Hyman got as much money as he got in Edmonton because that's the player or Darnell Nurse? No, they got an extra million to play in Edmonton, didn't they? That's fair, Tim, but here's the other thing. When you work in the the hockey markets that these are, and you're a general manager of a team, people hold you accountable to your words. When Kyle Dubas came out and said, we can and we will, well, that was what people held him to. And when Brad Treliving came out a few months ago and said, we have to change, we have to change, and then comes back and says, we tried, but we couldn't, you understand the frustration. (laughs) No, I completely understand the frustration, but I also know that there's some reality in it, in that, uh, if no one wants to come to your franchise, that's partly your fault, right? I'll completely. Um, Masai Ujiri is having the same problem. Like, there's there's something right now happening with small market teams that unless you draft the guy uh, and you cultivate him, it's really hard to get people to play in these smaller markets. And... Uh, I think you can throw Toronto is not a small market. Vancouver shouldn't be a small market. Montreal is not a small market, but like name me all those free agents they're attracting uh, without, you know, kind of sort of the Leafs overpay for John Tavares. No, they didn't spend much on that. Did they? (laughs) (laughs) They were like, you you already bought the pajamas. We don't need to pay you much. Do we? So all I'm saying is, like, let's let's just interject the reality of it, as well as holding Jim uh, Jim Treliving, I just love that time, Brad Treliving, uh, accountable for what's going on in Calgary, and he will be held accountable. I, I firmly believe that. But when Eric Francis's story came out, there was a was there not, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong here. And honestly, I'm asking, was there not a little like, yeah, duh, that's why we're in this spot? Yes. Yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah I yeah. absolutely agree, a hundred percent. And and so that's like to me, there's the balance, and absolutely, you will be held accountable. But you know, that's why the Johnny Gaudreau rumor has been out there for two and a half years, right? That's why the oh, going to move on from Sean Monahan, right? Like you're trading at a low point, and that to me, it's 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 similar to, um. You know, a story heard 5,000 times in all of sports is when you come off a crappy year and your team underperforms and the fans all want the players to be traded, and it's not that simple. That's when you get fleeced. That's when you knee-jerk and Taylor Harrell for Adam Larson, although I don't think that was as bad in hindsight as people made it out to be. But that's when the knee-jerk trade happens and the hindsight goes from 2020 to 50-50. Losing Adam Larson to Seattle was the one that hurt more than anything. Hey, Tim, good oh stop, buddy. Oh, my God, that is so true. They got blindsided by that one, switched everything. I agree. 
Uh, be well. Thank you. I'll stop talking now. No, thank you. We appreciate your time, man. We could do this all day, but you got a show to prep for after the Jays take on the Rays in the rubber match today. Thank you. Thank you, boys. That is Tim McAuliffe. Always a great conversation. You want to comment on it, 650-650-960-960. We'll follow up on the other side, Jamie, but that's the reason we led the show with those quotes today because they struck us maybe in a slightly different way, but those were the ones that stood out in the story that Eric Francis published yesterday. Oh, absolutely they were, right? You don't want to say making excuses is Brad Tree living, but just as you say, coming, look, okay, we said we were going to do one thing. We wanted to do that thing. Didn't get done. So here's, here's how it's going to be instead. That's the topic he had to speak on and will have to speak on repeatedly this season. There's another Canadian team that had to do more speaking today, and this story isn't going anywhere anytime soon either. It will be followed up on and followed up on and followed up on. We'll tell you which one next on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd.